Hello, my name is Tyler Bell and I'm the host and creator of the West Side Fairy Tales. The story you're about to hear is the tale of a couple who owns many things, but they find, as many others do, that stuff you own might end up owning you. If you like the story you're about to hear, you can learn more about my podcast and hear more stories at westsidefairytales.com. Now, without further ado, tonight's story, Stuff. This is a letter to the outside. I think, I hope, at least. It's been a while since I saw the outside. The windows are choked up with wine bottles from Mira's old collection. She liked to stick candles in the necks and light them. It gave the kitchen this sort of little Italy vibe she liked to brag about to Jeanette and the girls. Now the glass just throws muddy light across the room. Dusty glass turns it all green and brown. Real, real ugly. The drapes are another thing. They're all twisted now. No idea how they got that way. We bought them in 92, I think. It was on the fishing trip we took to Morocco, the one where we didn't actually fish at all. I don't know why we called it that, a fishing trip. We just shopped. All we ever seemed to do was shop. The curtains, the twisted up ones. We bought them in a little gray stone building with a weird sign. I can't remember what it looked like, other than Mira called it two clams and a candle. I I guess that's what it looked like then, though I, I can't really picture it. When we bought the drapes, we kept making jokes about that sign, but I can't really remember any of them. But I can feel the hurt in my belly, right below the ribs. That ache you get from really good laughter. I can even remember Mira's face. She was wearing that broad straw hat I'd bought her in Paris. It's still here, in the living room with the other hats. There's a stack of them on the second couch, arranged by the hat band color, so that they flow together in a sort of rainbow. It's a real neat effect, a big hit at parties. I don't have parties anymore. Even when we had the parties, I didn't have them. They just sort of happened. Mira would marshal the resources of the house, making sure the chiffon-serving platters were ready and loaded with fancy meats and cheeses from Whole Foods. Or were they Faberware? Sometimes they were Faberware, I'm sure of it. Yeah, they were Faberware, because we got those from Home Goods either the third or fourth trip out to get the melon baller. Fucking melon baller. Jesus, that was a debacle. You see. Mira had been watching all these cooking shows, and she got on a real bender about tiramisu. The garnish was what sold the dish, she'd tell me, relating some gossip about a party Jeanette had had where something melted at the wrong time. Jeanette actually came by last week. I think she's still in the bathroom. Anyway, Jeanette, real bitch, by the way, Jeanette made a recipe with these little shit. Anyway, Jeanette. Real bitch, by the way. Jeanette made a recipe with these little ice cream balls on toothpicks in the center of the tiramisu. Tiramisu is a complicated cake, if you didn't know. We still have some in the fridge, though I can't remember when the last time she made any was. The days have really been getting away from me. But like I was saying, these ice cream balls would melt if they were too small. Something about the way they rested atop each other and the cool surface of the cake kept them from turning to slush. The point is, 
the melon baller for the ice cream needed to be about 13 millimeters across and have the little mechanical piece that scoops out the, uh, uh, the scoop. Jeanette's was 10 millimeters across, no good. And so were the two we had at our place. We had a nice melon baller for guests and the like and the sort of everyday one we kept in the knife and fork drawer. Long story short, we found the right melon baller and Mira's tiramisu was a rounding success. Only three people had any leaving well. Most of a tiramisu behind, but she got a lot of compliments on the presentation and Jeanette looked miffed. Fun story about the melon ballers. Well, it's not a story, it's just a thing I do. When people come over for parties, I'll make an issue about getting the bottle opener out of the knife and fork drawer. Then I'll pull out the melon baller. I'll look at the guys and say, geez, aren't these things always in the way? They'll agree and smile, and then I'll pull out the second melon baller. Oh, wow, you have two of those? This is where things are really starting to heat up. I'll laugh and rub the back of my head right along the hairline. That's what sells it, the faux embarrassment. Then I'll say, you think that's bad? Then I'll go to the silverware drawer and pull out the third melon baller and say, here's the fancy one. It's always good for a chuckle. If you've got three melon ballers, you've got to get your money back on that investment. It's sad to say, but the line doesn't always go over well. Sometimes I just get a polite smile. Or people will stop paying attention to me before I get to the third or even second melon baller. There's really no way to prepare for that. You just have to hope it doesn't happen. But there are a lot of things you can prepare for. I have a second wallet, for instance, that I keep in case of emergencies. Particularly if I get robbed walking in a bad neighborhood. I don't visit places like that, but you never know. I keep the wallet stocked with $50, a few old credit cards, and a state identification card. I used to just keep 5 or $6 in the wallet until a police friend of mine said that small amount of cash might just upset a mugger, given that I look wealthy on the worst of days. To complete the ruse, I put some of my old credit cards in the wallet and even got a second identification card from the state. This had the negative effect of making the wallet too important to lose, so I keep it in my left back pocket at all times now. My real wallet is in my back right pocket, so there's the added effect of evening things out when I sit, which I've read is good for your back. Miro was complaining about a bad back when she went into the bedroom a couple weeks back. There was a lot of shifting around in there after she closed the door. And I haven't had the heart to go look. Luckily, we installed a few dozen security cameras in the house, if anything happened to her. The security service we hired to monitor the cameras will surely keep me posted. Secretly, I'm afraid they might have already called. But I can't find the phones anymore. At least the ones we have plugged into the walls. The walls are equally hard to find at times. A portion of the study's northern wall, I'm writing this in the study, is completely covered in plastic and steel rotary telephones. They are in a variety of colors, though most are red. Mira loves the color red. The curtains we bought in Morocco were red. Are red, despite the twisty thing they've been doing. A lot of our stuff has been doing this twisty thing. It's unnerving the way everything seems to be molded together at times. The way the stacks and piles droop over top of you when you walk. 
I used to melt army men, those little green guys with a magnifying glass when I was a child. I would melt half my army men, sitting in the noonday sun at Father's Place in Corsica. They would turn blackish and stoop over, dripping melted plastic like blood and viscera onto their bases. I believed this turned them into zombies and I would have my army men battle it out with the zombie horde. Jeanette said much the same thing when she came to visit. She said other things, of course. Where's Mira? And why haven't you returned the pewter chess set you borrowed last Christmas? After those things, she said our place was a mess and asked what happened. I told her we'd been shopping, because Mira had started feeling bad after the curtains started doing their twisty thing. She had nodded and suggested that perhaps it was time we finally had a child. Jeanette had a child when she was 19, shortly before she was married. Her son is a biomechanical engineer for Blackwell now, despite her dropping him onto the concrete in front of her house when he wasn't even a year old. I had been there. I had seen. She had been drinking. Jeanette's child's success was her success, given the way she talked about it, and, aside from Tiffany's auctions and tiramisu, the woman didn't talk about anything else. Until she came to visit. Then she couldn't stop talking about all our new stuff. She went on and on, asking, How could we fit this much shit in here? And where is everybody supposed to walk in this place? Aren't you two hosting the derby party this year? Then she touched a box of new Christmas lights. Well, a dozen or so boxes piled all the way to the ceiling. Her hand came back, a pulpy mess, dripping blood onto our die-cut marble floor and trailing little ribbons of hand meat. She went pale and then screamed a little bit and then went paler. Then she decided she didn't want to be here anymore, but it was too late. The door was gone. She didn't know the door had started to come and go on its own right around the time the curtains started doing their twisty thing. I'd wanted to tell her because I was trying to squeeze by her to get outside. But she just pushed in like she always did, yammering on about how great it was that she had a successful child. I really don't like Jeanette. She's a bitch, but I couldn't be rude to a lady. Once she found she couldn't leave, I told her she could probably clean up in the restroom. She turned a shade of pale I didn't even know she possessed, then excused herself to use the restroom. She pushed aside a stack of De Beers jewelry boxes, half a year's salary that, and that's the last I saw of her. I think she figured she could slip out the bathroom window, but I'm Pretty sure she didn't. After Jeanette left, that was pretty much it as far as visitors. I spend my time cruising the internet and using our home gym to stay in shape. I don't know what for, but I like to be prepared. I order things and add them to the piles. I eat ancient tiramisu and am loath to count the calories. I think our possessions get lonely. Mira was lonely even though she was with me. She told me that a lot. Alex, I don't feel like you're here. And I'd say, well, then where the heck am I? Then she'd hop on Amazon or something and buy stuff. New stuff, old stuff. We have a big house and there was a lot of space to fill. She started getting headaches, so I hung those old twisty curtains to cheer her up. Thing is, I'm pretty sure I only hung them in one room. There were only the two. Oh, well, you live and you learn. I just bought a new exercise bike, the kind where Google shows you on a map how much of the Tour de France you've just completed. 
I'm pretty damn good at it, but I don't think I'll be riding into Paris with a glass of champagne anytime soon. I'm writing this just in case the worst happens, so people will know what to do with this stuff. You know, you can't take it with you. Well, that was my story stuff. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, you can learn more about me at westsidefairytales.com. Thanks a bunch for listening, and until next time, as always, stay safe out there. To see one of the well-known people in Plainfield, well-liked person in Plainfield, hanging there, upside down and uh, dressed out like a deer. Uh, it's hard to explain how a man uh, feels when he sees something like that. Welcome, welcome to Serial Spirits, the podcast. I am your host, Brendan Shea, and with me as always is the beautiful, the lovely. Annie Weaves, how's it going, Shea Bay? It is amazing, Annie. We are a podcast that focuses on true crime, the paranormal, and anything mysterious. It's almost like if Robert Stack were still around and he was in podcast form. That's us, Serial Spirits, the podcast. We're podcast in a trench coat. In a trench coat. That's exactly right. So Coming Shay, out of the shadows. Coming out of the shadows. So Shay, it's Halloween month. It is Halloween and we are super excited. I know you love Halloween more than anybody I know. I do love Halloween. So today for this special Halloween episode, we want to bring you one of our most deranged stories that we've ever researched. Shay, do you remember the movie Silence of the Lambs? Yes, and I noticed the pun you put in there, deranged. Exactly. What about the villain from the movie, Buffalo Bill? Yeah, Buffalo Bill. Yeah, I know him. He you... had, he has, he's got some thick skin in the back for you if you need some. <laughs> Did you know that his character was actually based on a real person and his absolutely insane crimes? Yes, yes, I did. So I'm, you're just giving me hints here. I'm assuming this is the guy we're talking about. This is the guy. Let oh, us introduce yes. you to the life and crimes of the deeply disturbed man dubbed the Plainfield Ghoul, Ed Gein. Oh, Ed Gein. It's Halloween. Time for Ed Gein. <laughs> On a frigid November night in 1957, a murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Within minutes, deputies found a headless, nude, mutilated female body hanging upside down in a shed. Ed Gein was born in 1906 in Plainfield, Wisconsin on a remote farm to George and Augusta Gein. George was an alcoholic who couldn't keep a job and Augusta came to despise him for this. She segregated her family from society as she felt the influence of the outside world contributed to their family problems. Augusta was a devout Lutheran who also preached the evil ways of the world to her children, including the belief that all women, besides her, of course, were vile and promiscuous and carried sexually transmitted diseases. Them hewers. George died in 1940, leaving the farm in the hands of Ed and his brother Henry. In 1944, Ed and Henry were burning vegetation on the farm when the fire went out of control and the local fire department was called. 
It was then that Ed told firefighters they could not find Henry. The fire was extinguished and Henry's body was found. He suffered no burns and the immediate cause of death was named as heart failure, but the coroner later changed his cause of death to asphyxiation. It was later rumored that when Henry's body was found, he was said to have had bruises on his head. Ed and his mother were now alone on the farm and soon Augusta suffered numerous strokes that left her bedridden, Ed becoming her sole caregiver. She continued to preach the evilness of the world to Ed, encouraging him to keep himself from others. Their worlds revolved around one another until her death in 1945. Ed was now completely alone, and he needed to do something to fill his loneliness. He began visiting the local cemeteries late at night, first to his mother's grave. He then began perusing local newspapers for the obituaries of women and visited their graves as well. Ed stated that most of the time, he just sat in the cemeteries in a dazed-like state. But his M.O. soon changed. Ed soon began digging up these graves and removing the bodies, taking them to his home, and a twisted sort of harvest began. So, as most serial killers go, they kind of stalk victims. So he, like, went to the cemetery to, like, stalk his victims. He went to the local newspaper to the obituaries to stalk yeah, his that's, first victims. That's kind of that's nuts, ain't it? It's a little nuts. That's mommy issues and stalking. Do, 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 do. Mommy issue alert. He created a woman suit from his mother's remains, skinning her and pinning the skin up in the house to literally, quote, crawl into her skin. Ed's grave robbing continued for more than a decade until a living victim, Bernice Warden, went missing in 1957. Bernice worked at a local hardware store and was reported missing by her son on the day of her disappearance. According to witnesses, a pickup truck resembling Ed's was seen leaving the store earlier that day, and the last sales receipt on file was for a gallon of antifreeze, which is what Ed had told Bernice's son he was in the store to purchase. Police went to Ed's home, and the horrors they discovered were far beyond anything they ever could have imagined. Ed had created his own shrine to the dead. Found throughout Ed's house were, listener discretion advised from this point on, 13 and up please, whole human bones and fragments, a wastebasket and lampshade made from human skin, human skin covering several chair seats, skulls on Ed's bedpost, bowls made from human skulls, a corset made from a female torso skinned from shoulders to waist, leggings made from human skin, oh my God. masks made from the skin of female heads. So the whispers were... He, he was like the first whisperer. He was the first whisperer. From the walking dead. The skin and skull of another local missing woman named Mary Hogan. Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack and her heart in a plastic bag. Female genitalia in a shoebox. A belt made from female human nipples. Four noses. A pair of lips on a window shade drawstring. And fingernails made from female fingers. How many times do you think he went to the store or the bar wearing his nipple belt? Too many times to count, probably, and nobody noticed. A county sheriff's deputy discovered Bernice Warden's decapitated body in a shed on Gein's property, hung upside down by her legs with a crossbar at her ankles and ropes around her wrist. The torso was, quote, dressed out like a deer. She had been shot with a twenty-two caliber rifle and the mutilations were made post-mortem. Ed was arrested and questioned not only about the gruesome findings on his property, but also about several other missing women in the area. 
Ed confessed to digging the graves and murdering Bernice and Mary, but he was reportedly assaulted by a local deputy during the questioning, the officer banging Ed's face and head into a brick wall. The confessions were later ruled inadmissible due to the assault. On November 21, 1957, Gein was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder in Washara County Court, where he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Gein was diagnosed with schizophrenia and found mentally incompetent, thus unfit for trial. He was sent to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, a maximum security facility in Wapen, Wisconsin, and was later transferred to the Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. In 1968, doctors at the facility where Ed was being held reported that he was now fit to stand trial, giving details about the death of Bernice Warden, now stating that her death had actually been an accidental shooting. A second trial was held, and Ed was found guilty on one count of murder by a lone judge. However, a secondary trial to determine Ed's competence was held, and he was again found legally insane and returned to the psychiatric hospital, where he would live out the rest of his days. Ed Gein died at the Mendota State Hospital from lung cancer in 1984 at the age of 77. Ed's home and 195-acre property, including all of his belongings, were scheduled to be auctioned to the public in March 1958. The local townspeople feared that the property would become some type of ghoulish tourist attraction. On March 20, 1958, Ed's home mysteriously burned to the ground, destroying whatever secrets that were still held there. His truck, which had been used to transport the bodies he dug from local cemeteries, was auctioned off and purchased by a carnival owner, who turned the vehicle into a sideshow attraction and charged the public 25 cents to see it. Over the years, Ed Gein's story has been detailed numerous times in publications and on film, including the basis for Norman Bates' character in Psycho, Leatherface and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Shay, our personal favorite, the 1974 movie Deranged, in which Ed's character yes. was played, played by the creepy old neighbor man from our childhood favorite, Home Alone. Yes, he was, and he actually was even creepier. I thought he was in creepier in Home Alone, but he was still pretty creepy and deranged. He if was, you haven't seen Deranged, go watch Deranged. It's, it's a it's, fantastic it's, purchase. Yeah. It's 1974 horror at its finest. Sucks, but it's good. It, it's a it's a good one. It's a good one. So Shay, Ed Gein, in a nutshell, go. Crazy, solitude, fits every description of a creepy old man who took care of his mother for his whole life and never got out and to the real world. There you go. So there's the story of Ed Gein, short, sweet, and to the point for Halloween. You guys want more? Check out Serial Spirits on SoundCloud, iTunes, and on ParanormalWarehouse.com. We release an episode every week, so check us out. And until then, be aware and be safe. Freak Nation! You're listening to Freak Nation, the podcast that explores the fringes of society one city at a time. I'm Christina. I'm Amanda. And I'm Tim. And we're from Freak Nation Podcast, and we're going to tell y'all a quick story. Yep. Tim, where are we going? To the Elfin Forest. It sounds like something <laughs> out of Lord of the Rings. Oh <laughs> the Elfin Forest also has a couple areas known as Quest Haven and Harmony Grove. Oh my gosh. So where this... is the Elfin Forest? Uh, just southwest of Escondido, California. So Middle Earth. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, said to be located in a peaceful bastion of suburbia filled with beautiful hiking trails and campgrounds, says Backpackverse.com. Ooh. Well, this sounds pleasant. 
They warn to not be fooled by the names. Okay. <laughs> this is one of the most haunted regions of California. Oh. Oh. There are hundreds, even thousands, of stories, legends, and sightings of paranormal entities. Thousands? Mm -hmm. That's a lot. <laughs> like, you hear about a handful. Right. Uh, ghosts and specters have a very strong influence within the forest, and there is said to also be an evil witch abusing her powers. Ooh. See, I don't mess with witches. Mm -mm. Especially ones that abuse their power. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like if she introduced herself to you that way, you'd be like, oh, okay, All right. I'm going to go over here. Yeah. She's <laughs> like, hi, I'm Sabrina. I'm an evil witch that abuses my power. <laughs> and I am now thirsty. I love, how you, I love how you named her Sabrina. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> In Harmony Grove, there is a sect of psychics and other occult practitioners. They love to speak with visitors about the many paranormal influences on the land, and they hold many of the secrets and stories of the forest. I don't know how if I, I want to like <laughs> seek those people out. Exactly. Yeah, I, I wouldn't either. Yeah. There's so many stories about even how those people are still there. Oh. Yeah. Are they friends with the evil witch? We don't I know. wouldn't say friends. But, I mean, if she doesn't bother them, then they have to be somewhat in cahoots. Do they work for Sauron? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I need to know. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you put us in the Elfin Forest. We're two <laughs> right. women with Lord of the Rings tattoos. So. <laughs> right. You made your choices. So I just wanted to give you a small sample of one of the many stories. Okay. A family of three went into the woods and didn't come back for days. It wasn't really a big deal at that time because it was a different time and a more violent time. So I guess people would disappear all the time. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, Are we really? do we know like the time period? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Just the time when people disappeared all the time. So the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> I would the assume 1800s. like this is, yeah, really far back. <laughs> They're um, like, the Thomases went into the woods. Eh, we haven't seen them, but that's completely normal. Okay. Right. Okay. So we're talking the way, way back. Yeah. Like, their wagon tongue could have broken. Okay. Now Got they're it. eating each other. Got it. Well, apparently they were, like, just hanging out, going through the woods for the day. Anyway, eventually only the woman returned, claiming that her husband and son had been murdered. Okay. She said they were attacked, and as her... Family was torn to shreds by these attackers. She was the only one that got away. That stuff doesn't work according to forensic files. <laughs> you know. We watch it every night, so we're fully aware. Yes, you're well professionals. Yeah. yeah. The townsfolk nursed her back to health, and during this time, the woman spent a long time with old books marked with strange characters and her knights, meeting with even stranger people from local Indian tribes and even further out than local. Huh. Is this the origin story of the evil witch? Ooh. You would think so, but no. <gasps> oh, okay. Okay. Eventually, she became a cold, angry, even enraged woman. Oh. Eventually, she said she was, quote-unquote, ready. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> her deeds drove her mad. Right. Evil woman. 
<laughs> she dressed in all white and was never seen again. Nobody in town knew what she meant when she said that, but they had watched her like turn into this other person, and everyone was like, "Okay, you can go ahead and go into the." Could forest. you imagine being in town and like the weird lady comes out into the middle of town, gets on her soapbox, and just goes, "I'm ready." I just imagine her hair all like ratted and gnarled right. and right. her clothes like disheveled and torn. Well, apparently she like chose this white outfit. As the years passed, hikers and campers would see her floating through the land. Sometimes she moved incredibly fast and sometimes achingly slow. When you try to talk to her, she vanishes. Oh, uh-uh. so she dressed. To become a specter. <laughs> yes, did. <laughs> she did. She, she, she tailored the part. This yeah. is intent at its finest. <laughs> she is also said to appear after a murder or suicide has taken place in the area. Oh, oh. okay. So she's a soul collector. Yeah. Ew, don't say that. <laughs> oh, God, that's so awful. She's collecting. She was <sighs> ready to start reaping the harvest. Yeah, they say that she's just angry, and they theorize that she's, you know, forever looking for the people that killed her family. But I don't think that would be your way to get revenge. I think she went mad and decided she'd become something else. Well, if she really did see her family, like, torn apart, literally, who can blame her for going completely nuts? I mean... Yeah. Well, if revenge is what she was after, then I would have to assume that what she saw killing her family, she didn't think it was human. What if she's just a badass bitch in the forest, <laughs> like, chopping down monsters that are coming out? Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, that's definitely a different take. She didn't pick the right outfit for No. <laughs> well, white is quote-unquote good. Yeah. I wonder if the occultists know more about her. Now um, Amanda wants to meet the occultists. <laughs> trust me, there's so many stories, like I said. And there's so many that you could talk about. There's stories about them, too. So so we'll have to revisit the Elfin Forest, is what you're saying? Mm-hmm. As well as Quest Haven, which I didn't even get into, and Harmony Grove. I love the names. Me, too. I would live in Harmony Grove if it was <laughs> You don't normal. know anything about <laughs> Harmony Grove. So don't go saying that you would live there. <laughs> I would live in Quest Haven. I would, I would live in Elfin Forest, actually. I'm going to wear all... I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to put on my white dress and go out into the Elfin Forest. Make sure to tousle your hair first. Oh, that'll be easy. Give me a week in the forest <laughs> and my hair will be... <laughs> a day. <laughs> but we would definitely like to thank Tracy and Jerry for letting us come on to their show. Happy Halloween, everybody. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. See ya. Hey y'all, this is Frank the Bigfoot, and you're listening to the Paranormal Punchers. Hey friends, welcome 
Paranormal Punchers. I'm Mark. I'm Alicia. I'm Rana. I'm Nash. I'm Dave. And on this podcast, we have a letter uh, from a listener who dabbled with a Ouija board mm-hmm. and some strange things happened. Mm. Uh, we at Paranormal Punchers, we talk about all things paranormal with a lighthearted approach. Um, hope you enjoy this. Now, this was a letter that was actually sent to us by a longtime listener. Um, we're going to have Lish read it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> so a few weeks ago, my eight-year-old, who recently has been getting into the paranormal herself, really wanted me to get out the Ouija board. Being the person I am, I was pretty excited to get started. We got the board out and started small, asking basic questions like, is anyone there? Well, after a few minutes, the planchet started going towards yes. As soon as my daughter saw this, she freaked out and ran off. So I put it all away without closing the session. Uh Uh-oh. Little did I know this could have started something more. So after about a week, strange things started happening around my house. A few things started coming up missing, money, keys even, some important documents. I never really thought it was paranormal until a few days later. I awoke from a nap and went to the bathroom. And while in there, I heard a little girl thinking it was a friend of one of my girls. I started talking to her for a few minutes. Then I told her I would be out in a minute to see what all she needed. When I got out, no one was there. I had a small panic attack trying to find someone, but no one was home. I called my wife who informed me that no one has been there and they were out shopping. Since then, I've heard the voice again, but it's hard to make out everything. Anyway, my question is, could this have occurred from the Ouija session, and how can I make it stop? Okay. Um, one thing he didn't include uh, that he had uh, private messaged me uh, was he also, when this was going down, uh, certain nights he could hear the pitter-patter of little feet oh. and kind of giggling. Uh, that wasn't his daughter because his daughter was in bed. So he was getting really terrified. Mm-hmm. Rightfully uh, so. Oh, my gosh. Right. Now, a uh, couple things here. Dave, do you ever, uh, are you ever on the toilet and then just having conversations <laughs> with, your, with, your, with your kid through the door? No. Well, I'm just going to say, I'm just like, usually just like, hey, I'll, I'll, when I'll, I'm done, I'll, I'll be out. Right, right, right. Right. Now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, now, Rana, you have experience with the uh, Ouija board thing uh, and stuff, but um, would you ever, I mean, playing with the eight-year-old, is that? Probably a little too young to start, even though on the uh, Milton Bradley box, it says for ages eight and up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of crazy because most eight-year-olds, unfortunately, aren't mentally or emotionally or spiritually mature enough to even really know what they're doing. Now, there might be a few acceptables, but for the majority of kids, no, I definitely wouldn't. But, I mean, I I wouldn't. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Is it is it the case where children have like a like a more of a, a purity in their soul, so they're they're cleaner, brighter than than the rest of us? I'm thinking of you know, you know, if there was like a brightness to somebody's soul that the children have because they're so innocent and young mm-hmm. that they're they're the they're the cleanest. They could actually act as more like a like a lighthouse to bring something from the other side because of their brightness. I I, I do. You, I see what you're saying. That, <laughs> yeah. That's true. Eight is starting to get a, 
a little bit borderline towards conformity, though, of being conformed to this world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say much younger children. Like okay. They're more open three, to the... Four, that are they have they have only left the spirit world not too long ago. Right, right. So they're still very much in tune with it. But eight is getting a little bit more... Kind of on that borderline. Yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. Huh. I, yeah. I was just imagining that that child, you know, being his daughter, just being like a beacon, bringing something across that would see similarity. That way it was a spirit of a small girl or a small boy mm-hmm. coming to, well, coming now, to play. See, no, or... That's what he, he heard the... The voice of a small girl. Right. He thought he was having a conversation through the bathroom door with a small girl. But it is possible, right, that it was not. Uh, it could have been, hypothetically, maybe a demon uh, just That's putting true. on that voice to, to, to uh, like, a false sense of security uh, for this person. Right. Um, and, it, I mean, that would be really scary to open up the door and nobody's in the house. I told you. But I you had just the exact had the same thing happen to me. Yeah. Yeah. That would wow. uh, to have a full conversation to realize like because uh, it no literally here. sounded like her. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean I know exactly what he's saying. Now uh, we did reach out to uh, Rana um, based on her experience with the Ouija board and the spirit world and everything, and and Rhonda, who is also uh, a psychic medium, she's been on our podcast also as Rhonda has, and she's mm-hmm. here right now with us because we just recorded our Halloween episode. Uh, <laughs> you both had advice. Uh, for him, uh, one thing you said that he needs to, uh, well, you know, man up essentially and tell the spirit like, hey, you're not welcome. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of reclaim. You have to show them that you're not afraid of them. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of those that will feed on fear. I mean, mm-hmm. even people do that. Right. right. So, um, yeah, basically, I mean, you know, sure, you can do all the witchy stuff. You mm-hmm. can do the salt. You can do the sage. You can do all that. But if you're scared, none of that it'll, is it'll, doing a thing because it'll it's feed tools. Off of it. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. You have the power, not the sage, not the salt, because that's physical. Something physical cannot keep away something spiritual. So, well, uh, and well, he did take the advice, and he said that uh, it stopped. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, he took uh, both your advice and Rhonda's, and Rhonda's had stuff about, you know, uh, Wrapping the board, salt, you know, cleansing this, but also, also like saying, "Hey, look!" Uh, and he he told me that uh, that what has stopped, he sort of misses it a little bit. Uh, you know what? I know exactly what he's saying. Really, really, because I Dude. would be like happy it stopped. Because I mean, it sounds frightening and terrifying. No, mm-hmm. it's it's strange. It's ama- it's amazing what you get used to. Because when I lived in that house for twenty years, and it was a constant thing that it literally becomes your normal. It is not paranormal anymore. So, and I remember even thinking if they ever left, like all of a sudden just left, I would be devastated. Like I literally, you literally have some weird relationship, mm-hmm. but you become like, come used to yeah. them okay. being there. Right. Yeah. Ronnie, you lived in a house for a very long time. that was uh, well haunted. Yeah. And you had, you recorded EVPs all the time, had oh, situations. So things you, getting you, stolen. You, uh, I yeah. know exactly what he's saying. Yeah. So even for you though, like you would miss it. Yeah, uh, when it did go away. You Interesting. Do. You definitely do. Uh, I don't. I don't know where I fit on that that scale. It's, it's, I yeah. feel like I'd be okay. It like really when I with the no Shadow different. Man incident, I was okay to never see it again. It's really no different than if Nash sat and I. If we we sat here and talked every day for you know months, right? And then all of a sudden he never. I never see him again. I'd be like, you would still man, feel the absence go? of that person or that. Yeah. that. yeah. Yeah. You get to know their voice. Like there was a few of them that I would record that same voice again and again and hmm. again. And I actually knew the sound of their voice. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's just her. 
or that's him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so it really is a relationship because wow. that's really what we have here. Our yeah. spirits mm-hmm. are connected, not our bodies. Right. Okay. Well, let's see. What do we take away from that? Don't play the spirit board. Uh, maybe uh, with would, somebody that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, certain age. Eight, yeah. Eight. No. Uh, it's. They just don't understand. That's all. Right. If if something because does he, go, oh, he didn't close the session, so that, he didn't that's close a, the portal, right? You he have to it, you have to say it. goodbye. You got to yeah. close it. Definitely do that. Uh, and I guess it's okay not to necessarily be scared if you do have some paranormal activity. Exactly. It doesn't Unless mean it's that they're trying to hurt the, you. The a demon lot of from times, the Ouija board. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times, it's just messages. Believe it or not, I mean, it, people think that that spirit is try, going trying to harm them in some way, and no. Hmm. That's, you know, you're just trying to convey something. You just they're, need to pay attention to what they're doing because mm-hmm. there's a message behind that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious as to if she was eight years old and she wanted to get the Ouija board down when it did move. I'm wondering why that scared her. Yeah. Do you know oh, what I mean? It scared like, me. Ex- I might what, run. What was she expecting, though? You know what I mean? As an yeah. eight year old, like what? Right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Never thought about that. Mm-mm. Hmm. Mm. Well, I hope you enjoyed this little segment. Uh, find out more about us, listen to our podcast, just go to paranormalpunchers.com, learn all about us. Uh, and as we always say around here, if it's not weird, it's not worth checking out. Season's greetings. We are According to an Idiot, and we are honored to be occupying your ears for the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Gotta shake off the rust and get in the spooky zone. I got a few buzzwords that normally do the trick. Think candelabra. That's that's what I think of to get in the spooky zone, like an old candelabra in a castle. A wolf howls in the distance. I usually just think of my mom. I think of your mom to get in a different mood. Oh, fun! So, for those who haven't already skipped ahead to the next story, <laughs> hey! Uh, I'm Kaylee. And I'm Jeremy. And we're going to take you on a nice Halloween campfire journey into Ooh. the past. The past. Man, I love the past. Chronologically, I've spent most of my life there. <laughs> so, let's gather around the campfire, roast a couple of marshmallows, but... Make sure they don't get too dark, because this story is dark enough. I like marshmallows black, actually. I like them charred. That is easily one of your worst qualities. Woo! Okay, anyways. The story we have to share tonight, or today, or whenever you're listening to this, is Kaylee. I prepared a story all about Washington Irving Bishop. Bishop was born to an occult-loving family in 1855, which is kind of a nice, fun upbringing. Yeah, uh, he, a cute way to phrase that. An occult-loving family. <laughs> yeah. yeah, his family was very, like, into black magic-y type stuff. And he later became a famous mentalist or 
thought reader. What that means is he uses subtle cues from people and he reads that to interpret what they're thinking. Or like tells, like in poker. Yeah, exactly. Where you can tell what someone's hand is like because of gestures and quirks. He had his start into the occult as a manager of Anna Ava Faye's spiritualistic acts. Anna Ava Faye uh, was actually like a psychic Right, she was like a fake medium, essentially, right? She was a pretty famous psychic at the time, mm-hmm. and she would go around and do like lots of shows and tours and things. Probably a lot of seances, I'd imagine. Yeah, like this is around the time of spiritualism. Right, she claimed she could communicate with spirits, and so she was really popular at that time. And he worked as a manager. Uh, he kind of learned all of her tricks of the trade essentially of yeah. like being a psychic. So he figured out pretty early on that it was all a hoax. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had different ways to manipulate the audience. Obviously, there's a mystery in the universe, but I think for the yeah. most part, during the age of spiritualism, the giant influx of the psychics, most of them were just like mentalists. Yeah. They weren't telling people that they were reading their, their physical tells. They were just saying, oh, I know this because spirits are telling me this information or whatever. Right. After he learned that she was basically a hoax, he got really mad and exposed her to the media. And he became an anti-spiritualistic performer. And he wrote a book exposing all the trick methods used by psychics. So this is kind of where he turns from occult into mentalist. A real buzzkill. Yeah. Learn this trick. All the psychics hate him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, psychics hate him. Uh, So he became a mentalist after this. His performances were even more intense because of his trances. Hmm. So Bishop carried a card on him that read he suffered from cataleptic attacks. And he could remain unconscious in this trance for up to 52 hours and to not kill him by an autopsy. Wait, so it's like extreme narcolepsy? Kind of. He would just pass out? Yeah, so it's actually a nervous disorder where he'll go into a deep trance and have very rigid limbs and insensitivity to pain. So even if the limbs were moved, they'll remain exactly where they were placed. So Mm. just kind of think of someone in a very static, rigid position. Uh, They're not going to react to pain. They're not convulsing, but they're just kind of like stuck in one position. I get the same way when like someone I don't really know touches my shoulder. Yeah. Like a back rub. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the person is unconscious and they can remain in that state for several days. Wow. At that time, they weren't really sure what caused it. Intentional trances can be induced by pressure on certain arteries, by occult techniques, or drugs. All pretty fun. Right, and he did have an occult-loving family, so maybe they taught him how to get in these trances or something. The reason why he got in these fits is unknown. It's not like a coma in the way that respiration or heart rate changes. It remains stable and in normal levels. Yeah. And in psychic terms, a catalytic fit is a deliberately desired trance-like state When a medium is in a state of deep hypnosis and taken over by some other intelligence, which uses the medium's body to speak and act. Almost like possession, but it's like a spirit speaking through them. Yeah, exactly. But uh, when coming to after the trance state, there is no memory, which kind of plays into the pop culture as well. Oh, like how to to get here. Right. The last thing I remember was, okay. Yeah, like what happened? Okay, that explains a lot of fantastical stories through history. Yeah, definitely, right? Uh, It's not clear still if there is a like complex inner fantasy or dream 
scream going on when the person's in the trance mm. or if it's like a total unconsciousness. I don't I guess they never thought to ask someone. Yeah, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah you got any cool dreams? Oh, man, I got a bunch. I was waiting for somebody to ask me that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to be a bother. But yeah, some awesome uh, dragons. Right. Duh. So imagine bishop he's on stage you know it's kind of like a shtick of his i guess he'll go into these deep trances and just kind of like pass out yeah i assume the audience probably sat there for about two hours and they're like hold on i think he's just gone right i think he's just dead and that's why he had like the card on him right so on may 12th 1889 he became unconscious in one of his demonstrations while performing at a theater called the lambs club He was taken upstairs to a bedroom where he was reported to have been in a coma and died at noon the next day. Three physicians performed an unauthorized autopsy on him at a funeral home. Well, someone didn't check his pockets, I have a feeling. The card was never found on his body. One, One of the doctors in particular, John A. Irwin, was reported to have wanted to study Wellington's brain with an autopsy for many years. Both his mother and wife both claimed that he was not dead, but in a trance while the physicians examined his body and that he was murdered by the surgical instruments. Oh my god. So, so like, they, they wanted to cut him open. Like, yeah, they wanted there's to... There's this doctor who's like, for years I've wanted to look at this guy's brain and this is the only opportunity I got. Right, exactly. So they basically scuttered him off to a funeral home so that they could do this autopsy with no one knowing. <sighs> but can you imagine, like, he's alive and being cut into... Well, you gotta wonder if he can feel all of that. You right. I mean? There's that thing with comas where it's like you can still interact with outside stimulus. Mm-hmm. Brain scans have actually shown that coma patients, certain coma patients, can react to pain as much as healthy people, which is especially disturbing when you consider what Bishop probably endured. And if they do have some complex consciousness going on in that state and they aren't totally unconscious, then there has to be some nightmarish state a dream to relate to what's going on yeah exactly yeah. so you know he's skipping through some fields one minute and then the next his skull's being bashed open he was buried in brooklyn's greenwood cemetery as a tribute to the son she believed was murdered his mother had the martyr carved above his name on his headstone and it's a really popular and famous headstone in the cemetery now Mm-hmm. And a lot of people go to visit it, but yeah, it has like a gruesome ghost That's story that. tale behind it. Wow. Ugh. I would hate that would be the worst way to go out, especially if you're somebody who was really intent on uncovering psychics and the fact that it's all just a set of learned skills. And in the end, he was cut open by a doctor who was probably convinced that he was different and magical or something. Mm hmm. Because that's why he wanted to look at his brain. Right. It's like crazy to me that he was like so desperate to look at this guy's brain that he just completely dismissed if he actually was dead or not. He even knew him beforehand since he wanted to get his brain. So I'm sure he probably knew that he had these fits and trances too. And who knew? Maybe he took the card off his body. My hypothesis is that they saw it and then they just disposed of it. Probably. So yeah, very uh, interesting area. Interesting real life spook right there. Not exactly a ghost or a or a monster, but uh, it is in fact the monster that lives inside of us all. And that's the real scary stuff. And that's the real scary stuff. Well, I hope whoever you are, you, you enjoyed this story. It gave you a little bit of a uh, kind of feeling. It made you ponder. It made you think. It made you want to call your mom. 
made you appreciate life a little bit more. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you don't die by an autopsy. Happy Halloween, everybody! And if you did enjoy this story, make sure you check out our podcast, According to an Idiot. Now back to whoever else is about to talk. Hello, Hillbilly Horror Stories, and happy Halloween from here in the UK. It's uh, Lee here from Realm of the Supernatural podcast. Uh, 31st of October, there was uh, something important that was meant to happen on that day. It doesn't look like it's going to happen now. But anyway, I digress. So, Halloween, ghost stories, chills. I thought it'd be best to tell you a story which actually happened to me. A true spooky story, if you will. Okay, so this takes place when I was about 10 years old, and it was during the summer, we'd broken up from school, we was on holiday, and I came down this morning, it would have been about 9 o'clock, and I remember going to the kitchen to sort myself some cereal. As I passed the door, which is actually for a cupboard that leads under the stairs, uh, we used to keep um, bits and bobs, you know, the hoover used to be under there, some coats, uh, some scarves, you know, all that kind of stuff. The door was rattling. And obviously this was unusual because this is an internal door. And there's no windows in there or anything like that. So I opened it. And to my amazement, there was a little boy in there about the same age as me. And what was unusual about this little boy is not the fact that he's in the cupboard when he shouldn't have been. That he was invisible from the waist down. There was that much stuff in the in the cubby hole itself. You couldn't have stood up there in there anyway. Um, but anyway, that didn't seem to trigger any alarm bells. Uh, looking back on it, which is interesting. But he spoke to me. Uh, we had a bit of a conversation. I can't really remember what we spoke about, but I know um, I wasn't afraid or anything like that. And after a short while, uh, I set out to go. Because uh, my friends would be waiting for me. I was going to have my cereal and go straight out to, to play like. So I shut the door and carried on about the business. Anyway, next day it comes down, same situation. I'm walking past the door, it begins to rattle. I open the door, this little boy's there again, so we have a conversation. Now this little boy to me appeared, you know, very similar age to me. Um, unassuming, you know, just a normal little boy. We had this conversation and the only thing I can really tell you what we spoke about is he spoke about things that were um, going to happen in the future uh, good things um, you know for my life and, and for those around me kind of thing and it gave me a little bit of knowledge about the world um, and, you know etc a little bit you know, above my age if you like which um, didn't, come in, didn't come in handy as far as I could tell but you know that's the sort of conversation we had Um I would say he seemed to be well-travelled, uh, some of the things he was talking about. Anyway, so this went on for maybe four or five days, uh, maximum. This particular morning, I comes downstairs, door rattles. So this is, like I say, about four days later, five days later. I opened the door, and usual um, niceties took place. Um, I said hello, he said hello. 
uh, he started chatting. I started telling him what we'd been doing the day before. I think we'd had a water fight or something like that uh, in the street the day before. And I remember telling him about this. Uh, and I had to explain to him what that meant. He didn't seem to grasp. You know, looking back on it now, it seems unusual. But he didn't seem to grasp what I meant about, you know, the water pistols, the super soakers, that kind of thing. The the, 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 the uh, water balloons. Anyway, I remember telling him. And at some point in the conversation, he produced from underneath his jacket um, the easiest way to describe him or the best way to give you an idea of what he looked like was he was you know a young boy same age as me but he was wearing like a cloak and a hood um, like a you know like you see like wizards wearing that kind of thing and it was uh, purple like a purple silk and it had stars and moons um, on it so he offers me this drink, um, and the you know it looks like uh, what you see like uh, in a science lab, the test tube um, with some clear liquid in it. Um, well, it might have been silvery, but it was very you know more or less uh, translucent, more or less li- uh, clear. And he offers me this drink, and he asked me to drink it, and I, and I said no, you know I'm gonna have my breakfast, and uh, you know I don't want it. And uh, we, we spoke a bit more, and he offered me it again. And, and I still said, you know, you know, no, I'm not interested, you know, I don't want it. Um, and we spoke a little bit more, and he offered me a third time, and and I get I refused, and then he and then he started getting a bit more, a little bit more aggressive. He said, you know, you got, you know, you got to drink it. I said, no, I don't really, I don't really, don't want it. He said, no, you've got to drink it. And I said, no, I don't want it. And then he he started to sort of lean forward into me and sort of almost press it into me and say, no, drink it, drink it. Um, and I said, no, I don't want to drink it. And with that. He started to transform before my very eyes, and he, he became, which I presume he was from the beginning, but he became like, um, if you remember the film Gremlins, I think that's the best way to describe what I could see in front of me, was this um, gremlin-type creature um, with, you know, rows of sharp teeth. His skin was grey, uh, like, um, like a battleship grey-type colour, though. It wasn't green. Um, and... His, his eyes became inflamed and enraged and red. Um, I mean, glowing red. I mean, you know, uh, his body was that of a goblin, and it, it, you know, everything fell away apart from this this goblin standing in front of me. And, and he was really raging at me to drink this drink. And obviously, at that point, I was a little bit scared. So I remember backing up and slamming the door shut and holding the door for what felt like. You know, in eternity, but it was probably only a few seconds, and the door, is, you know, was shaking backwards and forwards. And I had both hands on it, my whole, my whole body weight against it, and I was screaming at the top of my lungs, you know, because there's people in the house, me, me, my parents, etc. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs for someone to come and help me. And after, a, you know, only a few seconds, probably no longer than thirty seconds, the door just stopped, and it was all still. And there was no sound. And I remember just going. He, he went straight out into the back garden, straight down, uh, straight down to my friend's house, and told them what had happened. And obviously they didn't believe me, but I told them anyway. It was probably about a week later. I think I got the courage to open that door, and I opened the door, and there was nothing in there apart from the, you know, the bits and bobs that was in there, the Hoover, etc. And that's really where it dawned on me that. No one could have been stood in there. 
you know, because of all the debris that was in there, it would have been impossible. Um, in later years, doing research, I've found that some stories, ancient stories now from Ireland, and uh, tell us these theory folk, or the wee folk, and a very similar story comes out in those where they try to entice you to eat or drink something from them, from the fairy realm. And the legend has it, if you do drink or eat, you become a fairy. So luckily for me, I chose not to drink that day. And I'll never know what would have happened if I did. So... Just be careful when you're out there Halloween trick-or-treating, you know. You get some food offered to you, some drink, you just never know. You might become a fairy. Well, thank you for taking the time to listen to me. From everybody here at the Realm of the Supernatural podcast, we really wish you a fantastic Halloween. Good night. Media, also known as Hillbilly Horror House. Here at Triple H, we bring you the things that scare you the most to the comfort of wherever you may be. But we're not all just scares and screams. <laughs> no. We also bring you laughs and zombies. We have a new show that will be released in the next few months called And Beyond. How would you feel if you woke up in a spaceship and ended up on an alien planet? How would you survive? The natives are hunting you down and you know nothing about the planet. Join us soon to see how Adam does it. But for now, enjoy this quick horror episode. And if you like what you hear, search and subscribe to Hillbilly Horror House. A special thanks to Jill and Gina from Always Never Write Podcast for playing the parts in this episode. Let me go! Stop! <laughs> You're already mine. All you have to do is submit. I will never submit to a creature like you. <laughs> Your mother never submitted either. And look what happened to her. <laughs> Tell me, what happened to your dear sweet mother? Tell me. She died. She died because of you, you son of a bitch. And her blood tasted so good. Almost as good as that. Of a virgin. You sick freak. You have no idea. Now, come to me. Never! Come to me, or your roommate dies.
And don't you touch her. <laughs> your choice. If you touch her, I will kill you. The choice has been made. It's time to wake up and face your decision. <laughs> no! Oh god, Lisa? Lisa, no. Oh, Lisa, wake up. Lisa. Nurse. Nurse, somebody. Help. Help. Doors open. Guys, really? Chains? She was out of control. I'm sure she was. Her roommate was murdered last night. We should be calling the police. Was there any blood on her? No. Her bed? No. Her side of the room? No. Anywhere? No. That's because she didn't do it. Now get those damn things off of her. That's really not a good... Now! Yes, ma'am. Meet me in my room in an hour and I'll show you regret, bitch. That's all, Jack. You can leave now. <laughs> good luck, Doc. Please, Rebecca, have a seat. No, no, I'm good. That wasn't a request. Are we going to have a problem, Rebecca? <sighs> no, ma'am. Want to talk about it? About what? Come on, Rebecca, you have to talk about this. How many does this make now? Three. Three? Let me guess. The boogeyman in your dreams did it again. He's real. I don't care what you say. He's real. He is real. All right. All right, calm down. Why don't you believe me? Come on, freak. You're done. Get your damn hands off me. Get off me! Nurse! Nurse? Just do it. No, 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 no. Please don't. Please don't. I can't sleep. Please don't put me to sleep. Do it. Ow! Why? Why would you... Why would you do this? You're gonna kill me. You're gonna kill me. This is all your... Take her to her room. Be sure to use the restraints. Yes, ma'am.
I know you're here. I know you're here. Let's just skip the games and get your ass out here now. <laughs> you called my love. I'm done with all this crap and I'm done with you. You're done when I say you're done. Now tell me what I want to hear. Never. I told you I would never submit to you. How many others will have to die, kitten? What did you call me? You heard me. Now get over here. No, no, get off me. Come now, kitten. Just give in. You know this is what you want. No! You know this is what you want. Just, Just submit, submit to, to me. me. Submit to me. Somebody, ah, somebody help me. Ah, submit to me, and I will help you. No. He is having his way with you, and I, I can make it stop. Just submit to me. Okay, okay. Not good enough. Save the whole thing. from here. Get me down. How? <laughs> it's not her. Well, who the hell are you? Rebecca, I don't know how you did what you did. I didn't do it. Then who did? Help me to help you. I was tied up, remember? You left me as live bait for a rapist. No, that's not true. I had no idea he was going to... He didn't like that. Who didn't like that? Who didn't like it, Rebecca? Him. Him who? Who? Him. Behind you. 
No, no. <laughs> I hope you enjoy that little show. <laughs> if you enjoyed this, please search and subscribe to Hillbilly Horror House. And always watch your back. everyone, this is David Flora from the Blurry Photos Podcast. The following is a creepy little story I read on one of my recent episodes. If you'd like to hear more ghost stories like this one, I've done a ton over the years. Just visit blurryphotos.org and go to my archives page to find more. And if you want to hear more in-depth stuff on topics like cryptids, true crime, conspiracies, weird history, or even me losing my cool about flat earth theory, check out Blurry Photos. I'm everywhere, fine podcasts are free. Thanks again to Jerry, Tracy, and Ninja. Enjoy the story. The Storm Growing up, I've always loved thunderstorms. There's something about heavy rain, the boom of thunder, the flashes of lightning that grips a very primal fight-or-flight fear in me. And I live for every second of it. That's why I decided to put my new phone to use and record slow-mo snippets of the storm, hoping to get some cool footage to show off on a few subreddits I follow. I had no idea what I was about to find. I slipped my phone in a waterproof case and set it up on a tripod in my backyard. I switched to slow-mo, pressed record, and hurried back inside. I carefully framed about half the shot to be of the sky and the other half of my yard. I figured it'd be really cool and even a little spooky to see the lightning illuminate the grass, trees, and our garden ornaments. Back inside, I turned off the TV and all the lights and just soaked in the ambience of the storm. The rain pounded against the glass while the thunder rattled the panes. Brilliant flashes of lightning bathed the yard in light, shooting wicked shadows in its wake, leaving behind only darkness. The storm was everything I hoped it would be. I only hoped my footage would hold up. After a good 20 minutes, I figured I'd probably recorded the best parts of it and that I should bring it back inside before I run out of memory. I dashed outside, grabbed the tripod and phone, and tried to slide open the door and move inside all in one swift motion. Regrettably... This resulted in me throwing the door open and slipping into the cold, muddy water just a foot from my warm, welcoming house. It didn't even cross my mind to hurry inside. I was too preoccupied with the fact that I might have cracked my phone to care that I was getting soaked. I inspected the camera lens, all good, no scratches, and flipped it to check the main screen. All clear. Good. Inside we go. After a quick change of clothes, I hooked my phone up to my computer and started to go through the footage. The 
The first minute and a half were just rain noises, some thunder booming in the distance, and pitch blackness. When I saw the first lightning flash, I felt a chill run down my spine. At the end of my yard, there was, very clearly, someone who appeared to be standing still, facing away from the camera. I froze playback. The burst of light was enough to show matted hair and ripped clothes smeared with mud, but not much else. I know there was nobody out there. My yard is fenced in. The gate, old and rusted, screeches when opened and I would have heard something. There's nothing out there taller than two feet at the most, other than a few trees. What the hell was I seeing? I resumed playback. With the next flash, I can see the figure moving. I could make out a little more then. It appeared to be an elderly woman. She didn't look like one of my neighbors. With the next bolt, she's not too much farther, but is shuffling around slowly, as if she's lost or confused. I ran downstairs and turned on the backyard porch light. I scanned through the rain and saw nothing but my yard. There was nobody there. So I returned to my computer. I continued to see this elderly woman with each burst of lightning. She appeared to be shambling in circles, but not close enough for the camera to render any detail. Finally, about 16 minutes in, she wandered closer to the camera. A lightning flash from the front of the house lit her features, and the camera took a split second to focus on her. Her eyes were a dull and cloudy gray. Her hair disheveled and beset with clumps of dirt, framed her gaunt and rotting face. Patches of flesh were missing from her cheeks and neck. A giant chunk appeared to have been ripped from her torso, which allowed her ribs to catch and reflect the light. They guarded an empty cavern. For what felt like an eternity, I couldn't rip my eyes away. Once again, darkness fell on the yard. The video continued as I sat, my mind reeling trying to comprehend what I saw. I watched the whole yard as I recorded and saw no one. Did I miss her? Or was this a glitch? Or a prank? It can't be. That makes no sense. Then from my speakers, I heard my door slide open. She stopped in her tracks and craned her head, looking towards the source of the noise. By the time I see the feed lift up and move from its spot, she was nowhere in sight. I nearly jumped from my chair when the video feed slammed into the ground. I had forgotten I dropped it. I saw a close-up of my face as I scanned the camera lens. Something brushed my shoulder, barely out of focus. The video flipped as I inspected the front screen and showed her slip into the open door, into my house, disappearing into the dark. I heard the door close behind me and the video ended on a shot of the empty living room. I shut my screen off, I unplugged my phone and threw it in the trash. 
I sat still, a thought scraping at my mind, a feeling I couldn't ignore. I felt cold. I'm Zinger from the podcast Zing This. My podcast mainly focuses on pop culture and fun stuff like that, but every now and then cryptids, the paranormal, stuff like that do creep in every now and then because, as you know, pop culture and the paranormal kind of go hand in hand with each other. So the one I'm doing today is kind of more of a paranormal story, but I'm doing it from a different point of view. This may be something you all might have heard about before, or maybe you haven't, but I think it's safe to say you've never heard it, heard it told from this point of view. So the year is 1954, and it is the month of July. Man boards a plane in Europe and is flying to Tokyo, Japan. The man has done this several times. It's nothing out of the ordinary for him. He's on the flight, he's, you know, relaxing, enjoying his flight and everything, gets to the airport, gets his bag, he only had a carry-on, because he's there on business, he's there for a quick business trip, get in, get out, he's done it a couple times before, no big deal. Well, as he gets the customs and everything, he shows them their passport, and the Japanese officials stop him, and they, they're looking at the passport, and they're looking at him picture matches everything seems to be in order minus the passport says he's from a country called Tered yes a country of Tered in Europe well I don't know if you know this dear listener that country does not exist in our world but in this man's world he grew up there. He's lived there his whole life. That country has been around for almost a thousand years. And he's never been had to deal with something like this before. He's taken aback that these men would dare question, one, the legitimacy of, of his country. And, you know, kind of it's, he's taking it a little bit in, in the... In the honor of like, you know, how how dare you say my country doesn't exist? It's a great country. It's it's lasted a thousand years. So the um, gentlemen who are looking over the passport flip through it and notice some very odd things in it. He's been to many different European countries. The stamps all check out. And then they notice he's been to Tokyo. He's been to Japan before. And all the stamps check out the exact way they're supposed to. Now, the man, of course, is saying that he's, you know, supposed to be there. He has some business dealings there, so he's like, you can call, it's this business and everything, and this is the hotel I have the reservations at. As he, you know, takes out all of his stuff so that they can look it over, he takes out his wallet. And the money in his wallet is from European countries. His checkbook has an address for Tourette. This, once again, country that they never heard of. So they, of course, kind of take the man aside 
and he's 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 getting a little frustrated now because he doesn't understand why one they're not just letting him go through. He's done this before, and also why they keep telling him his country doesn't exist. So they bring out a map of Europe, and he's like, "This this this will solve it." He goes, "Maybe they're just not familiar with European geography and everything." So he he's sitting there, and he um he's he's very. He's very proud because he sees exactly where he needs to point to, and he points to points right exactly to where to where it is. He's like, it's right there. He points to the country. Well, the men take, turn the map around, look at it, look at him again, and then they say, they say, sir, that is the Principality of Andorra. And the man laughs and goes, okay. This is getting old. I've never heard of this country called Andorra that you speak of, or a principality of Andorra. And as he looks back at the map, he can see clearly the name above the, over the country he pointed at. His proud home of Tered is the principality of Andorra. Well... A gentleman comes back because he gave him, of course, the information to check on his his hotel and everything. And he comes back that there's no reservation at that hotel under his name. The company he's claiming to um, to work for has no knowledge of him. And even though he opens his briefcase that he brought along. It's his only carry-on. And it has tons of paperwork. It verifies that he works there. All this stuff. But yet, when they get in touch with somebody from the company, they said that they've never heard of him. And the business, of course, that he's going to go visit in Tokyo doesn't exist. Well, the man is very frustrated and just wants to get this all sorted out and get along and get on his way. He has a very important meeting in the morning and wants to get, of course, on his way and get this all done with. Well, they the customs officials are very confused and want to get this sorted out too. They just don't want some random person coming into the country that's, according to them, got a ton of false information, but yet a lot of stuff is checking out. So they put him up in a hotel. They also assign guards to him. To keep an eye on him. Why they continue to look into this. Well the man goes in. Of course. Gets on the bed. Kind of sits there and is very confused. But he's like you know what. Maybe this is just a misunderstanding. He gets his paperwork together. Lays out the clothes he's going to wear for the next day. Has everything ready to go. And you know. Looks outside real quick. Sees that the guards throw out there and. Goes, lays down, and goes to sleep. It's been a long day. He's been through a flight, he's in a different time zone, and he just wants to go to sleep. Well, the man wakes up the next day and walks out. There's no guard outside. And on top of that, the hotel doesn't know how he got there. Why he's checked into that room. Why he has a room key for that room. But they just guess someone must have mistaken something. And he's very confused on why the guards and stuff aren't there. His only guess is they might have figured it out in the middle of the night. Well, he hails a taxi. Of course has it drive him. 
He arrives at the company that the people he spoke to last night said didn't exist, and it's it's right there. He goes in, does what he needs to do for his business stuff, goes back to the airport to you know board the plane the next day, walks up to the counter, gets a, of course gets his ticket to go home. Of course, not straight to straight to Red, but to one of the neighboring countries, and of course he'll take a quick trip to his home. And they stamp his passport and say, I hope you enjoyed your trip to Tokyo, sir. And he just kind of thinks of this whole situation as just being something that was a little strange, a little out of the ordinary. But that's his side of the story. I think you know our side of the story. Anyways, thank you guys for listening to this. Uh, If you want more stuff from Zingness, of course, go check out Zingness at Z-E-N-G, this on most major podcatchers and of course as always happy halloween and thank you once again for letting me be spooky with you guys hey y'all i'm donna and i'm carrie and we are paranormal chicks And we are so excited to be on this episode of Hillbilly Horror Stories. Yes, thank you so much, Jerry and Tracy, for having us on this spooktacular collaboration. We are truly honored to be a part of this. Right? And we have an amazing story to share with y'all. It is so creepy. The story we're going to share with y'all was published April 25th, 2019. It's called The Living History Project, and it's by Christine O'Neill. One of my least favorite parts about being a middle school teacher is the bullshit living history assignments we give at the end of every school year. Kids are supposed to sit with their grandparents and videotape, voice record, or transcribe their oldest memories for posterity and for an easy way to bring up their GPA. I have been doing this for 17 years, and when I collected the projects this time around, I assumed they would be as dull, if not duller, than usual. This had not been a particularly bright class. So I went home, poured myself a glass of wine, and prepared for a long night of, I only owned two pairs of pants when I was your age, and my brother got beat with a newspaper for hitting a baseball into a neighbor's yard. And of course, these projects were peppered with innocent old person comments that were so horribly sexist and racist that you just had to laugh. Now, I had a girl in my class whom I will call Olivia. She was pudgy, quiet, and proved herself a consistent B student. I expected her project to be as unremarkable as her, and perhaps that's why I was so profoundly disturbed by what I witnessed that night. Olivia had submitted two discs for some reason, so I began with the one marked Interview. My screen hiccuped twice before a grainy image of a living room came into view. The place was a hoarder's hell. Olivia was curled up in an armchair, clutching a notebook, and looking like a scared animal. Across from her sat a man with a somber countenance, smoking a cigarette and staring at her expectantly. Go ahead, a woman's voice whispered from behind the camera. Olivia's owlish eyes flashed towards the screen and then back to the man. I'm here with my great-uncle Stephen. She began almost inaudibly. He's going to tell us about his oldest memory from being in the army. Great Uncle Stephen looked like he'd rather be in a goddamn trench at the moment, but he waited patiently for the questions to begin. 
Not surprisingly, Olivia read verbatim from the suggested question sheet I had handed out to the students. He answered her curtly. Once or twice, I heard her mother whisper, Speak up, Olivia, from behind the camera. Typical boring shit. So I was intrigued when Olivia set down the notebook and asked, Did you like being in the Army? That was totally off script. Great Uncle Stephen emitted a chain smoker's wheeze. Nope. Glad to get out of my town, though. Where'd you go? Balkans. Uh-huh, she said. I doubted she knew what the Balkans were, and my suspicions were confirmed when she asked, Was Balkans very different from here? Yes. Mom cleared her throat from behind the camera, perhaps encouraging Great Uncle Stephen to be a little more forthcoming. But Olivia seemed genuinely interested. Uncle Stephen, what was your very worst memory from the Army? The old man crushed his cigarette in the ashtray and then slowly lifted himself out of the chair. I'll be right back, he mumbled. The camera shut off. When the screen flashed back on, Great Uncle Stephen had several pieces of paper and plastic sleeves laid atop all of the crap sitting on his coffee table. I was a kid when I enlisted, he said, looking at Olivia. Your brother's age, he told her. Olivia nodded. I never saw combat. Both of my deployments were in cities in Eastern Europe that had been destroyed by civil wars. Everything was a mess. I felt like a janitor for fuck's sake. <clears throat> Mom coughed. Great Uncle Stephen sighed and looked at his paper. My unit was assigned to a school that had been obliterated by all the violence. Broken windows, caved-in rooms, and for some reason, the part that got me the most was that the school had been like this for years before we got there. No one had lifted a finger to fix it. I saw kids walk by it on their way to go beg for money for whatever shit they did. The camera dipped back towards the floor as I heard Mom whisper harshly at Great Uncle Stephen. I couldn't make out what she was saying, but it wasn't hard to imagine. Do you want to hear the goddamn story or not? I heard him bark in response. Then you better let me tell it how I want. Mom, Olivia chimed, please stop interrupting. Are you presenting this in front of the class? No, Mom. We're just handing it in to the teacher. I'm sure he's heard the word shit before, Great Uncle Stephen contributed helpfully. I wasn't a he, as a matter of fact, but other than that, the statement was accurate. The camera was lifted, and after a couple of blurry focus adjustments, the shot was the same as before. Ah, uh, I'm talking too much anyway, he grumbled. He lifted the piece of paper in his hand close to his face. In the basement, I found this letter. I didn't know what it said, but I had a buddy of mine translate it. So I'm going to read it now, and then I'll tell you what I saw in that basement. A chill ran down my spine. Mom zoomed into Great Uncle Stephen and his letter. His palsied hands trembled as he held up the letter. This is what he read. Dear Sir, I never loved my country. So many of these skirmishes are born from patriotism, a power struggle for the shards of a once great empire. But I do not care what name my home has on a map. This fighting is senseless, and I stay as far away from it as I can. It was not these attacks and the disorganized violence that took the lives of my wife and child. It was illness. Mercifully, it happened quickly for the baby. Nadia suffered for longer. I watched in horror knowing I could do nothing for them. My only solace is that I was there for them every step of the way. I stopped going to work one day, and no one came after me. I doubt they noticed I was gone. Since the school was simply across the field, visible from my window, it would have been easy to go for a few hours each day and come home quickly to care for them. But what was the point? 
I was as useless to the world as I was to my family. I tried to take Nadia to the hospital, but the journey was too long and taxing. I brought her home and she died that night. After Nadia and the baby were gone, well, I don't remember much. I didn't leave my hovel, barely ate and slept, felt many times of taking my own life. Tempting though as it was, I felt paralyzed by my own helplessness. The one thing that kept me sane was my radio. I never turned it off once. Even though I didn't listen to the words being said, in fact, the channel I got the clearest was in English, I think, which I don't speak a lick of, but the voices, the music, and the true knowledge that life existed beyond this violent city sustained me. I have no idea how much time passed before I saw the light of day again. I was dizzy from hunger, so finding food was my priority. My radio came with me, of course. Since I first hold myself up, it has gone everywhere with me. It talks to me as I sleep and as I wake. I don't know what it's saying, but I know I would die without it. Once I had some water and food, it occurred to me that the only thing left to do was to go back to work. So I did. The following morning, I simply returned to the school where I was a janitor and got back to work. Nobody made a big deal of it. Like I said, Nadia had been sick for a long time, and those who worked at the school knew it. I appreciate that no one had pestered me to come back to work during the hardest days of my life. The teachers never said much to me, but we smiled at each other in the halls, and that mutual respect was perhaps the reason I decided to come back at all. The place had gone to the dogs without me, so I simply grabbed my broom and rags from the closet and set to cleaning. Everyone is grateful to have me back, I know, and the best part is that nobody minds my radio. I bring it with me everywhere and keep the volume low enough to not disrupt the students. No one has ever complained. In fact, I suspect they like it. The schoolhouse is not very big, but does require a lot of maintenance. The floors are always sticky and stained, so I spend most of my time mopping. Kids make messes. I guess that's why I'm still in business. Sometimes I have to move things around to make sure I get every spot on the floor beautiful and clean, but I take pride in that. And the repairs. The school always needs tune-ups here and there, and I am happy to help. Some days I'm reconstructing a desk that broke as I whistle along with the radio. Other times I handle more serious structural issues. Days when I have work like this, I feel truly instrumental, like a cog in a larger machine. How could this school survive without me? It took me a long time, but I once again feel that I have purpose. There is a larder behind the school that is full of preserved food. In lieu of payment, I'm allowed to take as much food as I need. That arrangement is fine. What would I do with money anyway? I used to bring the food back to my home, just one field away from the school, but when I started sleeping in the basement, no one seemed to notice. This school is special to me, and I cannot leave it unguarded. When I am besieged with memories of my wife and baby, I turn up the volume of the radio to drown out such thoughts. It works for me every time, except this morning. Because this morning, I woke up to dead silence. I frantically examined the radio to see what had happened. I honestly cannot tell you how many days in a row I have been using it. Did it simply live out its life and die naturally? I have spent the entire day trying to fix it. 
Most of this time, I have been crying. I am losing my mind without it. I have given myself until sundown. If I cannot fix it by then, I am going to take my life. I am writing this because the sunlight is starting to die and I know what my fate shall be. I have thought about taking one last walk through the halls of my school, saying goodbye to the students and teachers. I know I will be missed, but I cannot bring myself to leave this room. I cannot go anywhere knowing that my radio is dead in here. There are no more tears in me. It feels like now I can't catch my breath. I vomited what little food I had in my stomach, and I'm growing dizzy again, like I did after Nadia died. I am not long for this world. But before I take my life, I have closed the door to this room and stuck a chair beneath the handle. It is the only room in the basement and has a small casement that lets just enough light in for me to see what I'm doing. If anyone is kind enough to come looking for me, they should not be met with this gruesome sight. Perhaps they will see that the door is blocked, smell my rotting body, and simply forget I ever existed. But I have placed both my radio and this note outside the door. Kind sir, if you are reading this, I have one humble request. Please fix it. Save my radio. It did not deserve to die in its sleep, and I am ashamed that I cannot revive it. Now I'm ready to join Nadia and little Ludmilla in heaven. I hope this school can find another janitor who loves and cares for it the way I do. The hour is now. Do not forget my radio. Stanislav. When mom zoomed back out, Olivia had tears in her eyes. Thank you for sharing, Uncle Stephen. Mom said, her voice choked. I think we have enough. Wait, Olivia chirped. He said there's more. What did you find? Before Uncle Stephen could open his mouth, the image disappeared. My jaw dropped. Was that it? What did Great Uncle Stephen see? I promptly remembered that there was a second disc. This one was unmarked, but I hoped it contained the rest of the interview. There was no video, only audio. The voice that started up was Olivia's. Hi, Miss Garrity. I'm sorry about my mom, but she refused to record the rest of what my uncle was saying. But I asked him to continue and secretly recorded the story as a voice memo on my phone. I remember you said earlier this year that history is written by the people who win wars. She sucked in a breath and commits crying. But everyone's history is important. Even if they are sad, pathetic people, and even if they never won a single thing in their life. I haven't slept through the night since I finished the project. But you have to hear what my uncle has to say. There were tears in my eyes too. The sincerity in her words was beautiful. I was so flattered that she had remembered some trite phrase I threw around because it's what my history teacher said to me. Before I got too sappy over it, the audio began again. Fine, came Mom's frustrated voice. If you want to hear the rest of the story, fine, but it's not appropriate for a school project. Let me finish, Great Uncle Stephen snapped. If it's too much for you, help yourself to a snack in the kitchen, but Olivia wants to know what happened. I heard her mother mumble something and walk away. Olivia and her uncle were alone. I imagined her looking at him expectantly. So did you find the radio, or did it get ruined when the school got blown up? He rasped, and I heard the distinct click of a lighter. That letter, he began slowly, had a date on it. What date? She inquired hungrily. 
It was dated two weeks before we started rebuilding the school. Didn't you say the school had been destroyed like two years ago? Yes, replied Great Uncle Stephen. It had been. There was silence as I felt goosebumps on my arms. The images that came to my mind were almost too overwhelming to express, but Great Uncle Stephen put them into words effortlessly. Clearly, he had spent his whole life thinking about it. This man, this Stanislav, went to a vandalized, falling-apart schoolhouse and cleaned up blood and rubble like it was spilled drinks and dust. He smiled at dead bodies in the hallway and believed they were smiling back at him because they liked his radio. He moved around corpses so he could sweep the ground under them. The roof was half collapsed, so when it rained, he must have gotten soaking wet, but was so oblivious that he didn't even feel a thing. I could hear Olivia crying steadily. I found the larder he was talking about. It was all pickled, preserved food that probably tasted like shit. Most of the stuff was moldy. Did, did you see the dead body? Yes, hanging from the ceiling, but still amazingly lifelike. He wasn't rotting away. This hadn't happened years ago. Did he look peaceful? She asked, a chord of desperation in her voice. Couldn't tell you. The smell was rank, and his face was blue, and his eyes were bulging, like this. I imagined him demonstrating. And the radio? Olivia wept. I heard Great Uncle Stephen take a long drag of his cigarette. It was there all right, and it was still on. Wow, that was heavy. Heavy. And sad, and scary, and... Emotional, and all the things. And I feel like it's kind of... Like how we say the scariest things are the real life monsters. monsters. Yes. Thank y'all so much for listening to this amazing story from Creepy Pasta. If you want to hear more creepy stories about all the things paranormal and true crime, check us out every Monday everywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. And if you want to share one of your creepy stories with us, we do have a listener episode that we do every other Thursday. So you can send us all your stories to aparanormalchicks at gmail.com. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.